This is another episode of the Welcome To Podcast. I'm your host, community planner, Zach Vega. Welcome To is brought to you by the Land Information Access Association, LIAA, or LIA for short. We're a nonprofit located in beautiful Traverse City, Michigan, specializing in connecting communities around the state to the best practices, data, and media resources that they need in order to thrive in an ever-changing world. On this podcast, we talk to the people whose ideas and actions shape the places we live, work, and play. Check us out on liaa.org and be sure to follow the podcast and listen to other episodes on Spotify, Apple Music, or at liaa.org slash podcast. Enjoy the show. Time for some legal copy. Financial assistance for this project is provided in part by the Coastal Management Program, Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy under the National Coastal Zone Management Program. Through a grant from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, U.S. Department of Commerce. Statements, findings, conclusions, and recommendations in this podcast are those of Leah and do not necessarily reflect the views of Eagle or NOAA. This effort is part of the Coastal Management Program's Hazard Ready Coast Program Enhancement Strategy, which aims to improve the ability of Michigan's coastal communities to prepare, absorb, and recover from coastal erosion and flooding associated with Great Lakes water level changes. Leah, Michigan Technological University, and the University of Michigan serve as primary partners with the Coastal Management Program on the Hazard Ready Coast Strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of the Know the Great Lakes podcast series, as well as, as I mentioned last week, the final episode of the Welcome to podcast. Uh, This is a project I have really enjoyed doing, and I am uh, happy that others have found it interesting as well. Um, I hope that uh, the information that's come out has been interesting and uh, useful if you're a practitioner um, or a researcher. Uh, Again, I I still have no idea who's listening to this podcast, but I am excited to say that for our final episode of the podcast, uh, we have Brian Micah, who is a professional restoration ecologist with extensive experience in the business management development, uh, project oversight, design, and implementation of wetland construction, soft shoreline engineering, prairie planting, natural areas management, and best management practice design projects throughout the eastern United States. A lot of it happening on the Great Lakes. Brian is extremely knowledgeable in the actual engineering of of some of the solutions to what the problems that we've talked about in the past four episodes of this podcast series. Um, and I think what you might, what you'll find very interesting about uh, Brian's work is I think we've uh, in the first four episodes laid out some of the scientific and the legal um, issues that come along with the coastal dynamics of the Great Lakes shoreline. And I think Brian is an excellent resource to sort of talk about if you're a local decision maker, and right now you're all you're only familiar with the hardened shoreline options, you know revetment seawalls, uh, throwing in big boulders everywhere. That that Brian uh, his work focuses on some of those softer shoreline solutions and alternatives. So, I mean, yeah, that's exciting. So again, thank you everyone who has listened to the podcast over the uh, past year or so. 
interesting times this year. I, I didn't do very many episodes over the last four months because it was quite frankly uh, difficult to be motivated as much to do the podcast episodes because uh, a phone interview often for me is not as much fun as talking to my friends in person. Thank you to everyone again, the Welcome to Podcast. And again, my name is Zach Vega, a community planner up here in northwestern Michigan. More projects to come, more planning information to come. Um, but for the time being, go back and listen to all of the Welcome To episodes in order, and especially the Know the Great Lakes podcast series. Listen to it five times. Share it with your friends. Tell everyone you know. Um, and thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate it. This is Brian. Hey, Brian. This is Zach. How you doing? Zach, how you doing? Good, good. Is uh, Are you ready to go? I am. All right, all right. Um, so I think first thing, uh, we're not as familiar with each other's work, so uh, a mm-hmm. lot of questions will be coming my way, or your, coming your way. First thing I wanted to ask, how did you get involved in the work that you do, and what exactly do you do? I know you work at the intersection of ecology and engineering. What exactly does that mean, and, and how did you get involved with what you're, what, what you're doing currently? Sure. So I'm a, I, I go by the title of restoration ecologist. So my, my job and my, my kind of day-to-day work involves the repair of natural ecosystems. So we have, you know, historically and through time, uh, damaged ecosystems in a lot of different ways, and that includes wetlands, lakes, streams, prairies, forests, uh, you name it. So my job is to take a look at how some of those ecosystems have been damaged and then uh, looking at both the physical parameters and biological parameters and find ways to repair those ecosystems. Uh, so every project's a little bit different because every project's been been damaged uh, in a little bit different way. Sure. So uh, so when you say that, are, are, just so I'm clear on it, are you talking about uh, ecosystems that have been damaged by... Uh, built environment factors like developments or if there was a, a mine there and then it was abandoned or um, it was just naturally damaged and needs repair? Uh, what what kind of focus area are you taking on that in that approach? So really, it runs the spectrum. Uh, it can go anywhere from the invasion of invasive species to farming and urban development uh, to working with ecosystems, you know, that work within the built environment to areas that have been contaminated through historic pollution, uh, mines, excavating, uh, really it it runs the whole gamut. Okay. Uh, So in terms of uh, Michigan's Great Lakes, I I know that you've done work in other areas, but it seems that a lot of it focuses on the Great Lakes. What is unique about the ecosystem restoration that you do on the Great Lakes compared to, say, a prairie, uh, or I, I would say a prairie would be quite different, but like a wetland or a shoreline in a different community, such as a, maybe an inland lake? What's, what's unique about the Great Lakes projects? So I would say first and foremost, what's really unique about the Great Lakes is that our shorelines and coastal wetlands are quite literally defined by change. You know, historically, Lake Michigan will fluctuate, you know, upwards of six feet on these 10 to 20 year cycles. And along with that, things like sediment transport, uh, the near shore hydrology, uh, vegetation, wildlife, all of those different parameters change along with that water level fluctuation. 
So whereas in a lot of uh, different types of places, you might see a little bit uh, more stability, that change quite literally defines our, our Great Lakes shorelines. Right. And uh, for our listeners who listened to the first four episodes of this Great Lakes series, they should know that by now. Um, and, and the reason <laughs> I was excited to have you on to sort of conclude this um, Know the Great Lakes series was that uh, we have you know, a, a strong understanding at this point of the science behind it, the legal implications behind it, and, and some of the planning solutions towards it. But what we often, our team, our, our coastal resilience team, finds that we're uh, lacking in a lot of situations where we're working with communities is some alternative solutions to uh, shoreline hardening, such as revetments and and uh, things like that. So uh, the main reason, uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on today is to talk about some of those alternative solutions that uh, communities aren't often thinking about. So often we hear from municipal officials, they're dealing with high lake level rise, flooding, uh, shoreline erosion that's threatening a lot of homes. And the only solution that they're aware of is shoreline hardening. And so they're often under pressure from the, the resident, and they, they typically are, are willing to provide that revetment uh, permit um, because it's really the only solution that they see other than uh, what we've talked about in previous episodes, which is just letting the shoreline take its natural course, which would mean the house is lost. Um, so as a, an elected official or a, a someone who's in a small town, that's a hard decision to make. So uh, in your work, what, what other options are there for... Uh, for homeowners and, and municipalities to consider? So, so when we start talking about options, that discussion really, it needs to start with the understanding that our Great Lakes shorelines change significantly and very significantly uh, as you move uh, really throughout the state. Uh, we have open coastal uh, areas, uh, Lake, you know, Lake Michigan facing areas that really never had extensive vegetation established because the energy is just too great. Uh, we get different embayments, uh, bays, uh, near shore areas where we might have an island uh, or we might have a certain geographic or geologic feature that uh, might reduce the energy a little bit on the shoreline itself, and those are the places where you tend to see significant vegetation starting to get established. So as the geology and the geography and just the overall setting changes with the shorelines, our potential solutions for, shore for shorelines uh, and shoreline softening changes as well. So when we talk about the different solutions that we have, we like to kind of look at it as a continuum of, of softness. On one side, uh, we know from studying you know, natural shorelines that there are settings and there are situations even on, on open Great Lakes shorelines where if you have an appropriate slope and the appropriate sediment and things like that, that vegetation alone, uh, plant roots can actually hold uh, sediment in place and actually minimize erosion. Uh, we've seen that in, in all different uh, locations all throughout the Great Lakes. But that's not always the case. Uh, sometimes we have uh, shorelines where energy is, is much, much higher. And in some of those cases uh, where we have this continual churning of sand and vegetation is just in, unable to get established, 
it becomes much, much more difficult. In a lot of those settings, shoreline erosion isn't as big of an issue when, when we have lower water levels because all of that wave energy might break 100 or 200 or 300 feet or further offshore, and those waves aren't really damaging uh, or, or threatening infrastructure or properties. But when, uh, when we have high water, such as what we're dealing with uh, over the last couple of years here in the Great Lakes, not only does that high water bring that wave energy closer to our infrastructure, but it also actually causes those waves to be higher. And in those settings, it becomes very difficult, and the, ener and the energy is just so great. Uh, in some of these cases, we have waves that can that can move one-ton stones, so significant stones. So when the options that we have can, from a softening standpoint can range from any, anywhere from planting uh, and simple vegetative solutions, which isn't always going to be appropriate for, for these higher energy shorelines, to what we might call biotechnical engineering. And that's where a lot of the work that we do with these higher energy Great Lakes coastal environments lives, where we are combining sometimes either man-made structures or uh, elements like rock and stone and wood and things like that along with plantings to abate that wave energy and ultimately get vegetation established again. So live, uh, some people use the term living shorelines, natural shorelines, nature-based shorelines. There's a lot of different terms that are used out there depending on where you're at across the country. But in the right environment, in the right setting, uh, we are able to use these different types of natural systems to uh, uh, stabilize eroding soils along a shoreline while at the same time uh, maintaining all of the ecological benefits that a natural shoreline would have. So when you go into, let's say there's a community that calls and uh, says that they've got some homes at risk of, you know, the erosion is, is bringing the lake closer and closer to the homes, it sounds like wave energy, slope, and the sediment type are, are very important. What, uh, what other factors are you looking at um, when you're deciding what solution is most appropriate? So from an engineering perspective, we're always looking at risk. What's the risk of failure? And what we'll often find, and this is a, this is a pure anthropogenic factor uh, uh, that we look at, is, you know, what's, what's the risk of failure? If you are uh, a national park, a national lakeshore, or a land conservancy, uh, and you're not necessarily trying to protect a structure, uh, then you might be more willing to go with a softer solution. If you have, in, like in the setting that you described, homes, a conference center, center uh, you know, significant infrastructure, then our tolerance for risk is going to be much lower. And in those cases, we're going to be much more likely to look at you know, potentially less soft solutions. One of the other things that we're, we're always going to look at that really complicates issues on Great Lakes shorelines is access. And this is something that I think is often overlooked above and beyond just the pure design is how are you actually going to access a lakeshore to construct what, uh, whatever design solution you may have come up with? Because when, when we have a home on, on top of a 100-foot bluff, very limited access to the water, you know, constructing access alone can be, can be half of the cost of 
of a stabilization or restoration project. When you're looking for an engineering solution, obviously the the main goal is to serve the client's need. Um, but I think what's unique about the work that I've, uh, you know, looking through the work that you've completed, that's different from, I think, a lot of the engineering solutions that we hear from across the state is the first solution is t- typically hardening the shoreline so that the homeowner is satisfied in the short term while the lake levels are high. Was it, is it GEI's stance to, to sort of find these alternative solutions? Um, or is that something that was a personal interest to you? How, did, how exactly did you get involved in kind of an alternative engineering solution approach to, to the shoreline? Sure. So I guess if I were to wind the clock all the way back, uh, I actually started out in Purdue's uh, engineering school. And at the time, I wanted to be an environmental engineer. At the top, But back then, environmental engineering wasn't what it is today. Uh, so it dealt with wastewater and things like that much more. But I was always interested in the physical processes and how they relate to the ecological systems. So I wound up in an interdisciplinary natural resources program where I was able to then cherry pick engineering courses. Uh, in today's day and, age, day and age, ecological engineering is actually a major that, that, that you can select at a lot of major schools. But that just didn't exist at the time. But I, I always had that interest. Uh, and having grown up around the Great Lakes my entire life uh, and studying ecology and succession and things like that, I just always had that real interest. So I started out my career as an ecological restoration technician, really working in the field, implementing a lot of these different types of types of solutions. And that really, for me personally, it piqued my interest because it, it checked a lot of boxes on what I wanted to do with my career. I always enjoyed designing things and building things and working with ecological solutions like I do now. Uh, I'm really able to to kind of get the best of both worlds. So here at GEI, uh, we provide a wide range of of different types of engineered solutions, and I work within a practice group that really focuses on these these alternative solutions, these ecological solutions, where we're not only looking at stabilization, we're looking at at trying to maximize those ecological benefits uh, at at the same time. So it's it's one more layer to, to the overall design solution that we're trying to come up with. So that consideration for the environment when you're thinking of an ecological solution, was that sort of GEI's, like, was, was it sort of a, a mission-based thought that brought them to that? Or are you finding that more and more communities are, are seeking alternatives? They're, they're cognizant of the fact that um, hardening the shoreline is not often the best solution, or is it both? So I would say it's both, but what I would say by and large, what I've really seen over the last 10 years or so is that lakeshore communities, be it inland or Great Lakes communities, are collectively becoming much more sophisticated. And people understand that there are long-term implications to anything that they do to their shoreline. There's always going to be going to be some type of reaction. And you know, there are people who lived through the last major high water period that we had uh, in the mid-1980s and saw long-term damage that occurred as a result of things like shoreline hardening and things like that. 
so uh, as people understand that they value and they love, you know, lakes, not just for the view, but for all of the ecological benefits that those lakes provide them, people are really asking for solutions that uh, protect their infrastructure while at the same time maintaining the ecology of the lakes themselves. So it sounds like it's, you know, fairly well supported by the market to take in a, a different approach to these engineering solutions. Um, and, and you talked about how, you know, when you were in school, it, it, this field kind of didn't exist in the same way that it does now. Is that driven by just new technologies and new sciences that are coming out? Is it that, uh, more and more people have just through experience, like you just said, know that the Great Lakes, hardening the shoreline kind of destroys that public beach. What, what big changes happen in the field to, to get it to where it is today for people who aren't familiar with, with um, what it looked like 20 years ago and what it looks like today? I think, I think it's really a combination that the science has gotten better. Uh, there's also been just, just a lot more experience that's really driven that science and the science has driven experience. And at the same time, I think that, that educational efforts have been very successful. Uh, you've seen state groups, federal groups, local groups all throughout the country and especially in Michigan. Michigan's really been at the forefront, I believe, uh, uh, of a lot of the educational components as they relate to to shorelines and natural shorelines. I think this kind of multi-pronged approach of better science with better education has really brought to light uh, in homeowners' eyes and municipalities' eyes uh, the benefits of natural shorelines and how you can either, uh, you know, really benefit the lake by how you manage your property or at the same time, you can really have a negative effect on the lake if you don't manage your property uh, your property appropriately. Right. There's always that public versus private interest uh, in the shoreline, as as we've discussed. But exactly. Um, exactly. So, I just lost my train of thought. So, can you tell me a little bit about the uh, Michigan Natural Shoreline Partnership? Sure. So, uh, the Michigan Natural Shoreline Partnership was founded in. Was 2008 or 2009, uh, and I was fortunate enough to be one of the founding members of that organization at the time. Uh, and really, it was a group of, of different organizations, uh, including the state of Michigan, Michigan State University, Michigan Sea Grant, Michigan Conservation District. A lot of these different groups, uh, typically the Watershed Council, uh, a lot of these different groups got together and, and really saw a need for natural shorelines for multiple reasons. One being that, you know, our biggest threat to uh, lakes in Michigan is actually the loss of near shore habitat. So multiple studies have shown this. So these entire fish communities really, fish communities, wildlife communities, they really depend on that land-water interface, that near-shore habitat niche, uh, as a key part of their life cycle. And studies have shown that through development and poor management practices, we've lost a lot of that near-shore habitat. And in turn, uh, we've really seen the decline of a lot of uh, ecological communities within our lakes themselves. So this partnership began back in 2008 and 2009 
and really had four main pillars that it was based on. Uh, one pillar was education, uh, with the understanding that we really needed to be able to educate lakeshore homeowners about the values of lake-friendly management practices and, and natural shorelines. Uh, there was a policy pillar, and that policy pillar uh, included staff from from the state of Michigan at the time DEQ, now Eagle, and they understood that there might be potentially ways that they could uh, uh, create some incentives within the permitting and policy aspects of of shoreline work to actually encourage uh, natural lake shores. Uh, the third pillar was training. We recognize that if if we're successful in really educating and creating a new market uh, for natural shorelines, well, we needed trained contractors to go out and be able to actually build these shorelines. So we created a contractor certification program to train designers, landscapers, marine contractors on how to actually design and install natural shorelines. And since then, we've uh, we've been able to certify over 400 people in the state through this program. And then the fourth pillar of of the partnership is uh, research and, and uh, demonstration. So we also recognize that the science needed to advance further uh, to really start to push this whole practice of natural shorelines forward. We needed to have a better understanding of what different types of techniques would work in different situations uh, and also give ourselves the ability to try out some new and different techniques and see what might work as collectively across the country uh, this entire practice started to move forward. And before I forget, where, where can people find information on that certification program? So there's information available on the certification program on the Michigan Natural uh, Shoreline Partnership website. It's mishorelinepartnership.org. It's mishorelinepartnership.org. And on uh, on our website, uh, we there's literature, there's extensive information where people can just learn about natural shorelines. We have a series of YouTube videos, uh, and there's also information on uh, on that certification program. Great. It sounds like similar to what we're doing with this Coastal Resilience team of just partnering a lot of different entities to make sure that we're all on the same page and what we're promoting. Um, working with a lot of different agencies, you know, you're working with contractors, you're working with the state, you're working with uh, federal entities. Um, what have been some of the roadblocks that you've run into since uh, starting the partnership in 2008? What have been some of the, the challenges? Sure. So changing mindsets has, has certainly been a part of it. And part of that has come from, you know, creating a change from what historically has been done. And then part of it is also understanding you know, how to better convey our message and teach, uh, teach the practice of, of natural shorelines better. The language that we choose is very important, and we had to understand how best to create language and techniques that would not only teach designers, but teach marine contractors and shoreline landscapers 
and municipalities and homeowners and lake associations all at the same time, how to really connect with those different groups. And I would say the other the other part of that, one of the real roadblocks that we've seen is that when we first started the partnership, we didn't really know where we didn't really know where things were going to go. Uh, it was an idea. It was something that that a group of people felt very passionate about, but we really didn't know where it was going to go. So the the partnership at the time was developed around Michigan Inland Lakes. And the techniques that we taught were really focused on lower energy systems. Uh, we, we viewed all of that as kind of a starting point. Well, what happened fairly quickly is some people tried to take some of those lower energy techniques and apply them to higher energy systems. Uh, and, then, and then there were some failures, and then people would say, well, natural shorelines don't work. And that wasn't necessarily the case. It's that it was the wrong application for the wrong technique for the for the wrong setting. So what we quickly saw is that there's a real need for natural shoreline restoration techniques uh, for for uh, moderate and higher energy systems, and and there's a need for training training to go along with that. And at the same time, we under we understood that. Michigan's inland lakes uh, uh, were one thing, but but the Great Lakes also needed education as well. So several years ago, we actually modified again, sorry, modified the mission of the Natural Shoreline Partnership to cover all of Michigan lakes. So now we don't only focus on inland lakes; we focus on all Michigan lakes, which includes the Great Lakes. And we're developing new training and new uh, uh, educational materials that focus on on these higher energy systems because we're understanding that that's really where where there's there's a need across the state. Uh, yeah, you sound pretty busy. Um, are you? So, so is would you is a lot of your? How do you split your time between sort of the education resources and the training uh, versus the hands-on engineering work? Sure. So, so the thing with the Michigan Natural Shoreline Partnership is is that it's an all volunteer organization. So there are some staff from Michigan State University and the state that that are given some dedicated time as as part of their job descriptions to help with the program. But a lot of other uh, uh, folks within the organization participate just just because it's something that they believe in and that and that's where I lie is it's something that I believe in but at the same time uh in my w- working as a consultant you know I find benefit from from learning about natural shorelines through the partnership and at the same time I'm able to bring some of my specific project experience whether it's design or construction to the partnership to then help help teach uh, some, of cert- some of the certification program. So as with any volunteer organization, there tends to be a bit of an ebb and flow as far as the amount of time that goes into it. Typically, we get a little bit more active during the winters, uh, and during the summers, things tend to slow down a little bit within the partnership itself. As, as everybody who's, who's really working uh, as a member of the partnership, uh, just tends to get busier uh, during the spring and summer months. Sure. And 
So one of the things that I noticed for people who uh, didn't attend, we did a Coastal Leadership Academy hosted by the Michigan Association of Planning for Emmett County, which is in north, the northwest lower peninsula of Michigan. And I, know, I, I noticed that while you were giving uh, or answering questions, I should say, that you're um, hesitant to generalize solutions. So it seems to be that each site has unique features and that it's really case by case. So when people ask you, okay, uh, if we're not going to do hardened shoreline and we want to do a soft solution, what do we do? Uh, and you're like, well, we have to, we have to look at the site first. Can you, in, in that sense, can you give an example of some of the more typical or more common solutions that you employ on the Michigan shorelines? And then a couple examples of some of the more unique solutions that you've had to go into. Sure. So, uh, last, late last summer, we actually did a follow-up monitoring of over 20 different shoreline restoration sites that we'd worked on in a drowned river mouth that was right adjacent to, uh, Lake Michigan. So fairly high energy, not, not Lake Michigan high energy, uh, but you know air, air, some areas that got five to six to eight foot waves at times during extreme storm events, and uh, and still so experienced all the same water level fluctuations that we see within the Great Lakes. And what we've found is a commonality in restored shorelines that have been able to to be resilient to these water level fluctuations. And what we've observed really mimics what we know about natural Great Lakes shorelines. And that's shorelines with a very gentle slope. Typically, in engineering speak, we would say a a 10 on 1 to 20 on 1. So 10 feet of run to 1 foot of of vertical drop. Those shorelines with gentle slopes, and especially gentle slopes that have, uh, where we've been able to incorporate shrubs as, as a plant type, uh, those shorelines have, have tended to be very resilient. And that very closely mirrors what we see in natural Great Lakes shorelines, uh, at least to a degree. Uh, most natural Great Lakes shorelines, coastal wetlands have that very gentle slope. And typically when that happens and vegetation is able to get established, uh, those systems are able to ride out those water level fluctuations and waves uh, much better. So when we're trying to create some of these these types of shorelines and, and, and actually restore some of these areas, uh, one of our first choices is going to make, to make the slope as gentle as possible. Understanding that real estate along shorelines is often expensive. That's not always an option. So when we're not able to create that gentler slope on a shoreline, we tend to start to have to incorporate some things like rock and stone into the shoreline itself. But the trick is when we're using rock and and, and stone and things like that in these settings, we're not necessarily just trying to create a wall or, or just a revetment we are trying to very selectively place that rock to strategically break up wave energy, but still creating gaps in it to allow the exchange of water and sediment and ultimately wildlife that may need to pass back and forth between the lake and the land itself. And when we do that and we place stone strategically, it can actually create safe places 
for vegetation to become established. And in those cases, we wind up seeing these kind of hybridized shorelines that have vegetation and rock together, which may not 100% mimic a natural shoreline. But when we're dealing with the intersection of the built environment, we have to understand that we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and that we have to hybridize some of these solutions where we can still maintain some ecological benefits by strategically incorporating rock and vegetation together uh, while it's still, at the same time still keeping things uh, uh, functionally stable. And so let's say, um, you know, like I said before, most of the communities that we go into uh, the first issue that they bring up in terms of, of how they're responding to the high waters is someone's been issued a permit from the state uh, and we don't have any other solution in mind except to also issue them a permit, a permit if that's uh, even handled at the local level. So if I'm a local official and I don't necessarily, uh, I, I know the, the drawbacks of shoreline hardening, but I, I'm just unfamiliar with uh, softer options. What are specifically those other options? What other engineering features are there? Sure. So, so some of the things that a lot of people are looking at right now, and this is specific to these big, high-energy Great Lakes shorelines, where we don't have a lot of other options, but a key part of the conversation has to be the understanding that high water is cyclical. Uh, we can, we never know exactly how long water is going to stay high. And in fact, right now, some projections are showing that next year might be lower than, than we had this year based on the most recent Army Corps of Engineers uh, projections. So we have to understand that high water is cyclical. So what we're finding is that some of these communities that want alternatives to hardened shorelines, specifically on, on big high-energy systems, they're looking at things like encapsulating, say, sand into what we would call a geotube. Uh, a geotube is a basically a synthetic fabric, uh, and these may be anywhere from five foot to ten foot in diameter. And actually, and it's actually sand that's placed in a tube. And this has been done on marine coasts quite a bit in the past, and we're seeing it brought to the Great Lakes a little bit more now. That if you need a, a solution that's going to last for maybe just a couple of years, and then you can potentially go in cut that fabric out and let the shoreline restore itself and beach restore itself, it gives us an opportunity to buy some time with a, what's ultimately a very solution. And then when the lake goes back down, you can get your beach back again. So those are some of the creative types of solutions that we're seeing. We've also seen some places where people are putting rock, not necessarily right on, say, the toe of a bluff, but out off of the shoreline a little bit, where it's acting as more of a breaker. And these aren't always always perfect solutions for, for a number of reasons. But sometimes by creating breakwaters out offshore a little bit, you can still maintain sediment transport along the shoreline. You can still create breaks and you can still maintain some connectivity for wildlife and water and water exchange and things like that between the land and, and the water. But you, but you're, at the same time, you're also getting some wave dampening by having that that breakwater or or some, in some cases we might call them sills uh, located just offshore uh, uh, in in Maryland and Chesapeake Bay and places like that. Those have become very common. They call them offshore sills as opposed to breakwater. So just a little speed bump that's able to break up some of that bigger wave energy and then. Uh, 
allow your beach and or native vegetation to get established behind it. So some of the communities that we've been talking to um, have taken the information that we provided on hardened shorelines. And I, I, I think what a lot of people just aren't aware of, and, and what you said, uh, they're becoming more aware of it, and that's why we're seeing more demand for the work that you do, that a lot of these communities, because they only know of hardened shorelines, and we come in and we provide education to say, okay, these are not a permanent solution. Um, you may lose the natural beach. You're likely to lose the natural beach. Um, and then if the water just keeps rising and destroys the revetment, now you've got a costly cleanup and no longer access to the beach. So some of the communities that we're talking to are, are happily, we're happy that they're, they're taking this to heart and they're saying, okay, well, we're going to ban um, hardened shorelines in our zoning code, uh, which if that's done, I, I, it sort of leaves property owners in a, with the option of losing their home or moving their home. So have you worked in any communities or through the education portion of the, uh, the Natural Shoreline Partnership or the research portion, um, ha- have you seen any communities place any alternatives to hardened shorelines in their zoning? So I don't believe in Michigan that I have seen that. But the state of Wisconsin is actually one of the, I guess I'll use the term, one, one, one of the more progressive uh, uh, governing bodies that I've seen uh, as, it, as it relates to natural shorelines. And the state of Wisconsin in their statute has a tiered approach. So they've developed a system when you go to apply for a permit to do work on a shoreline, you have to categorize the energy of your shoreline by low, medium, or high. And there's a series of calculations that need to be run through and things like that. And any shoreline that's rated as low energy, the state will not allow any kind of a hardened shoreline. But then when when shorelines have moderate or higher energy, they are more open to hybridized approaches. So they use this tiered system, which I think helps to balance things a bit because you can understand from a municipality standpoint, you know, if, if a municipality bans all hardened shorelines and somebody loses a house and then, then there's potentially significant liability associated with something like that. But going with the, these kind of hybridized or tiered approaches, I think could be a way to help encourage or even require natural shorelines on lower energy systems while still recognizing that in these higher energy systems, uh, the wave forces can, can just really be extreme and can be a serious threat to you know uh, infrastructure. Okay, so it sounds like there's been a, you know a statewide approach to this, but in terms of uh, any local action, no examples so far. I, 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 not that I can say that I've seen. I have seen some lake associations uh, ban the use of, of hardened shorelines, but not necessarily a governing municipality. I haven't seen that just yet. And so, when you, um, you, you know, when you're coming in, you're you're coming in to solve a problem. Uh, what are what are some of the, in hindsight, problems that you've seen that could have been more easily avoided and that you would, you know, sort of, uh, you know, again, we don't want to generalize, but some recommendations to communities to, you know, don't, don't do this. 
the great big airplane view thing that I would say first is that planning matters. Uh, and that's very, thank you for that. It's hard to, (laughs) it's, uh, it's hard to plan when you are in a reactionary setting, like we are right now with high grade lakes levels. But so time to do the planning is really when water levels are low, when you have the time to address these issues. But I've always felt like the trouble is that uh, if you try to plan for something that's not an issue right in front of you, people are much, much less likely to buy into it. Uh, you know, I like to say pe- people would much rather go to the doctor and get medicine once they get sick than they would eat a carrot ahead of time to try to prevent getting sick in the first place. And I feel like better planning when we're in a non-emergency or non-reactive setting could help us you know, mitigate and alleviate some of these issues when we do get into extreme situations like we have right now with, with these high Lakes water levels. And that, and that can include anything from extending setbacks to determining where you put roads to your, your ability to establish a natural shoreline is, is much better when water levels are low and you can get plants rooted in than when they're high and you're getting, you're getting shorelines battered by, by high waves over and over again. That is uh, certainly the issue that we've run into in the two years that I've been working on this is uh, a lot of communities call and they want, they want engineering solutions from us and we have to explain, no, we, uh, we take a 20-year approach to, uh, to this. So what findings, whether it's through the Michigan Shoreline Partnership or Natural Shoreline Partnership or through the work that you do with GEI, um, what are sort of some of the new findings that, that, uh, that you're excited about, let's say, in the next five to ten years in terms of finding solutions to this issue? So I think what, what's happening really is there's a lot of science starting to go into this at the academic level now, I think. And I think that what's happened is a lot of these techniques have historically been practitioner-driven. You know, people went out, they tried something, it worked or it didn't work. Sometimes they could explain why it worked or it didn't work, and then you went on to the next project. And I think what we're seeing happen more so now is you're seeing, you know, wave theorists combine with ecologists and start to really look at the specifics of how waves affect plant roots or sediment transport or all these different types of things. And one of the best examples I can give of that is uh, uh, Dr. Denny Albert, who was, who worked at Michigan for a long time. He's out at Oregon State University now. He studied Great Lakes coastal wetlands for the last 50 years. And he's out at Oregon State now that has a world-class wave tank where, that they use for studying waves and tsunamis and things like that. Well, Denny took a three-square bulrush, which is one of the most common species that we see in all of our Great Lakes coastal wetlands all throughout all throughout the Great Lakes, including in, you know, places like Whitefish Bay that, that get big, high energy. And he put it in a wave tank, and he started hitting it with uh, different sizes of waves to try to determine what would happen to that vegetation based on various slopes and various waves to see at what point that vegetation would start to break up. And I think that as we really start to drill down into the science of what's happening in these natural communities that hasn't really been studied well before, 
that science is really going to inform design and it's going to give us much better information as opposed to this historic kind of practitioner driven, try something out, see what happens. If it doesn't work, try something different next time. Uh, so I, I think we're seeing that engineering and ecology really come come together in ways that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I think that's that's fairly true for the different disciplines that sort of affect the the, uh, the built environment. I, I especially know in planning, there's there's more of an integration now. I think with um, sort of the the knowledge that's coming out. The one one of the examples I can think most of, sort of the not to get too far off track, but sort of the integration sure. of psychology and um, the study of the built environment now that we have like VR and we can actually measure people's responses to different types of built environments. It, it, it is interesting to see how improvements in technology across all of these disciplines is sort of in a way bringing them together. And, and yep. it seems yep. especially true when it comes to um, you know the, the local officials in these communities, as well as uh, the engineers and the educators. Um, so yeah. in, in terms of, you know, the Great Lakes shoreline, obviously, uh, well, I guess not, Obviously, we can't predict. If this year's taught us anything, we can't predict anything. But assuming the shoreline uh, in Michigan does go back down again and, and remains low for a period of time and the natural beach does come back in a lot of areas, and like you said, the, the, the low periods are when we can do our most effective planning. So in, in 20 to 30 years, considering the planning and the engineering and, and all of the, the factors that go into it, what would you say is sort of a vision for the Great Lakes shoreline, and, and what would be sort of an obituary? Interesting. That's a great question. So uh, I actually heard from, I just referenced uh, Dr. Albert, heard from him recently about some of his observations. So, so he's monitored Cecil Bay, up actually up in Emmett County, for about the last 50 years. And his concern right now, as we talk about the obituary side of things, is that you know this high water and higher wave energy it has it is impacting negatively some of our great lakes coastal wetlands now that same thing has happened in the past uh you know we've had high water before we've seen either damage or shifts to some of these coastal wetland communities in the past his concern now is that and in in past cycles when that's happened uh the community's been able to repair itself but in today's day and age we have a lot more invasive species present uh, and when you create an opening in a natural community like that, the potential for invasive species to really take over a lot of these shorelines is, is, is likely to be pretty significant because, because they're so incredibly opportunistic. One of the other things that, uh, that we've seen talking obituary wise, uh, and you saw this over, over Lake Erie in some places is back in the 1920s and 30s, they had some big storms that came up, caused destruction of a lot of wetlands. And at the same time, carp were introduced. And that carp started to make some of these bays so turbid and so murky that vegetation was not able to get established again. So when you get these anthropogenic influenced factors uh, combining with natural factors, we see either... The, the total loss of wetland plant communities and shorelines or the potential degradation through the presence of invasive species and things like that. So I think that those, that's, those are probably our most likely obituary types of scenarios. The vision on the positive side of things is that 
if we can understand that now, and if we can understand these cycles, and, and I think it's important to understand that, yes, water levels have historically been cyclic, but we've never seen this kind of rate of change necessarily before. And most people that I've talked to said, you know, you can't predict the weather except what's likely to happen with climate change is that the wet is going to get wetter and the dry is going to get drier. Uh, so, we're, you know, we're probably more likely to see these extreme and relatively fast swings in water levels. That's, I think that's going to open us up to, uh, uh, to a point where it's, it may be difficult for some of these natural ecosystems to repair themselves without some sort of intervention along the way. And I think if we can be prepared for that and use all of the lessons that we are learning, uh, be it education, science, planning, uh, if we can understand that, you know, hardened structures are may, may cause the total loss of a beach. And if we can understand better to plan for these extreme highs or extreme lows, because uh, it was just a few years ago that that we were dredging inlets everywhere when we had extreme lows. Uh, if we can plan around those and understand that those are generally going to be temporary impacts, then I think we can come up with a set of tools that are going to allow us to ride those out, you know, still allow us to have communities along the shorelines while at the same time be able to recreate on these shorelines by maintaining beaches and also maintaining the overall ecology uh, and natural processes of these shorelines themselves. Uh, themselves. So I, I realize that that's probably a big statement, but I think that's where we may be going is we're going to take all, all this knowledge that we're gaining right now and we're going to turn it into tools that are going to allow us to maybe not panic the next time we get an extreme lower or an extreme high. Well, we will, uh, we'll check back in uh, <laughs> 20 years from now. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. Sure. In the meantime, though, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think this is going to be really useful information for people in a variety of disciplines, whether they're a local official or um, you know a student who didn't even know that this uh, that this work existed. So thanks for that. Is, is there sort of a, a final message you like to leave people with in terms of this uh, this topic area? So in general, uh, what I always like to say is just just think holistically. We live in the Anthropocene. I, I have a friend who says that uh, quite often, that it's impossible to separate humans from nature anymore. And if we understand that no solution is ever going to be perfect, but if we think holistically, we can protect nature and we can protect the environment while at the same time still thriving within our communities from a very human standpoint, I think we can integrate all of these different concepts and all of these different ideas together in, into a really sustainable way of living on and, and living in our lake shores. All right. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Um, where can people find more information about, uh, I, I know you mentioned the Michigan Natural Shoreline Partnership website. Is, is there anywhere else that people can find out what you're working on? Sure. The Michigan Natural Shoreline Partnership website uh, is always a great one to go, to go to. There's also a significant effort in the Northeast called the Living Shoreline Academy. Uh, they've done a lot of good work. 
and and if anybody's interested in learning a little bit more about the company I work for, uh, our website is geiconsultants.com. And on there, we have examples of some different projects that we've worked on as well. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, again, appreciate your time. I appreciate the time. Thanks a lot for talking today. Welcome to is brought to you by the Land Information Access Association. Music was provided by Rudat Sessions. Thanks for listening.